and welcome to episode 5 of Commotion of Coots. After a brief hiatus over the new year, we're back with the Coffee Break friendly show looking at different species from the world of wildlife. My name is Anthony Robson and I'm a natural world enthusiast, photographer and conservationist. I love trying to understand the traits and habits of wildlife and the folklore and tales that have sprung up around them over the years show I'm not the only one to have been captivated. In this episode, I look at man's relationship with the cormorant. It's fair to say that the cormorant has a mixed reputation, and I'm going to put much of the blame for its symbol as a portent of doom at the door of John Milton. In his 17th century epic poem, Paradise Lost, Milton tells a tale of Satan's first incursion into the Garden of Eden, when he sits in the shape of a cormorant on the tree of life as the highest in the garden to look about him. Basically, he's there to spy on Adam and Eve. And it wouldn't be too much of a stretch from this to the belief, mainly in the UK and Ireland, that a cormorant sitting on top of a church steeple was a bad sign. It proved too much for the inhabitants of Boston in Lincolnshire in 1860. There was plenty of panic at the appearance of the bird on top of Boston Church, and when it was still there the following day, the caretaker took up his gun and shot the bird from its perch. In a moment of confirmation bias, the beliefs of the townsfolk were realised when they found out about the sinking of the Lady Elgin, a paddle steamer on Lake Michigan, the very day the bird first arrived. There's perhaps no notable connection to Boston, save for the fact that the local MP, Mr Ingram, and his son were on board and both perished. But it's not all bad news for the cormorant. Certainly the owner of the Packard Motor Company liked the bird, as in the 50s all his cars were adorned with a stylized cormorant for a hood ornament. And in Norway, seeing three of them flying together is a good omen, and anyone lost at sea can return home in the form of a cormorant to see their loved ones once more. Meanwhile, in ancient Greece, Homer has Odysseus saved by a sea nymph who takes the form of a cormorant, just as he seems about to drown and die. It's from Greek that we get the scientific name, phalacrocorax, which translates roughly as bald raven. The link to ravens seems to be nothing more than a connection in colour, with the deep black feathers tinged with a slight green iridescence in the right light common throughout all of the subspecies, even though many can have a variety of coloured patches. Even the common name, cormorant, plays on the monochromatic stereotype, being of Latin origin, meaning raven of the sea, corvus marinus. Milton probably got the idea for Satan perching atop the tree of life from the cormorant's habit of standing out in the open, with wings outstretched, looking like it's hanging them out to dry. And actually, that seems to be exactly what they are doing. While, like all birds, cormorants have a preen gland with which to keep their feathers in shape, they can't actually make them waterproof. This does have its benefits, allowing them to dive to great depths, measured to around 45 metres, in search of fish. There's an easy comparison with another expert fisher bird, the almost perfectly white counterpoint gannet. In order to dive, a gannet has to take to the water from the air, plunging from height at high speed. The cormorant, meanwhile, simply arcs over from the surface and without the buoyancy of waterproof feathers can make easy progress down. When both reappear on the surface with their catch, the gannet will bob, like a duck or a goose, while the cormorant is almost entirely submerged, sometimes just that snake-like neck breaking the surface. 
This is even more prominent inland, where many cormorants spend their time in preference to the sea, with the fresh water providing even less support, diving down along rivers, canals and even in local parks. Of course, I'm suggesting that the cormorant is diving in order to find fish, but Aesop had other ideas. In his fable of the bat, the bramble and the cormorant, the three protagonists go into business together. And yes, I do realise this means the bramble is sentient. For the venture, they set out to sea to become merchants. The bat borrowed money, the bramble took a suit with her and the cormorant had brass. The ship promptly sank and while all three were able to recover to shore, all belongings were lost. And so, to this day, the bat hides during the day, only coming out at night in order to avoid his creditors. The bramble tugs at the clothes of anyone passing in the hope of recovering her suit. And the cormorant waits by the shore, diving down to try and find his brass. The moral of the story? That we fall again afterwards to those things we most mind. I think it's essentially an anti-consumerism tale, two and a half thousand years before the iPhone. You can always, of course, bank on man to exploit the abilities of nature, and the fishing ability of the cormorant is no different. We think of this happening in Japan and China, where it's still practiced to this day, though more and more for the entertainment of tourists. But it was more widespread. They still use cormorants in Greece and North Macedonia, and in the 16th and 17th centuries, it was also popular in France and England. So much so in England that during the reigns of James VI of Scotland and I of England and Charles I, there was a master of the cormorants in the court. The practice involves tying a cord around the cormorant's neck so it can't swallow the larger fish, then sending the bird into the water from a boat to do all of the hard work for you. Because it's now performed to tourists from far and wide, it's a well-known aspect of the cormorant. However, Christopher Isherwood, the Anglo-American novelist, playwright and poet, struck upon a trait of cormorants when it comes to laying their eggs that I'd never heard of before. He recounted this in his poem, The Common Cormorant. The common cormorant, or shag, lays eggs inside a paper bag. You follow the idea, no doubt, it's to keep the lightning out. But what these unobservant birds have never thought of is that Herds of wandering bears might come with buns and steal the bags to hold the crumbs. I'm going to have to look out for the paper bags and the bears the next time I'm near a breeding colony. Thank you for listening to this episode of Commotion of Coots and remember to subscribe through your usual podcast provider. I'll be back in around a week's time with episode 6 optimistically thinking about the coming of spring with the punky little skylark. Until then, always remember, let nature take its course.